Well, please uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. That's where we'll be. 2 Corinthians 4. I'll actually start at the end of chapter 3. The book of 2 Corinthians, as we've been going through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, well, how about I uh, pray and then we'll start in chapter 3, verse 17, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Again, we come to you thankful, thankful that you have saved us, that you have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit, you've given us the gift of your church, and you've given us your word. Please help us to steward your word well this morning, that we would see what it is that you have for us there, and that we would make application by your grace to our own lives, that we would be drawn closer to you today because of the time that we spend together in your word. And Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul the Apostle has, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, been focusing on the glory of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 while he's also answering the question that he started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 16, that question is, who is sufficient for these things? Now, that's a great question, and it's one that takes, uh, you know, some time to answer. And as Paul is answering this question, he's explaining how we have been made sufficient in a new covenant with God. We have been made sufficient as Christians, those who are ministers of Jesus Christ, servants of God, and Paul is explaining how the new covenant is able to provide that sort of transformation because there's a ministry of the Holy Spirit in this covenant that changes us from the inside out. So he's explaining deep gospel truths through chapter 3, and he's also contrasting his methods with those of the false teachers, the false apostles in Corinth. And we're going to see that latter part more this week as we get into chapter 4 where Paul is still contrasting himself with the false teachers, that he is different in his ministry and those who are with him are different. But let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 17, and read through chapter 4, verse 2. Remember, those chapter divisions were made by man, not by Paul originally. So we can, you know, ignore those and keep reading as one continuous piece. 2 Corinthians three seventeen. it says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So over these last few weeks, as we've been looking at chapter 3, we've been learning that those seeking transformation, the transformation that is mentioned in 3.18 those seeking that transformation through the Old Covenant will not find it. In the Old Covenant was the ministry of the law, the law of Moses. And with the law of Moses comes death. The law is really good at killing us, condemning us, judging us. And for those who are honest with themselves, there is despair when you're under the ministry of the law of God because we will never measure up to God's holy standard. Those who are perhaps deluded, they will not find despair, but pride. They'll find pride in their keeping the law and in their good works, thinking that they're earning cred with God. But what's the end of pride? What's the end of despair? The end is the same. It's death. And so to be transformed, we learned last week as Tyler walked us through the end of chapter 3, that transformation comes by the Spirit, and the veil must be taken away. There's a veil that exists in man's natural state that must be taken away in order for man to be transformed. 
rejectors of the gospel, those who have pushed away the good news, those who have denied the work of Jesus Christ, who have run, run away from their maker, they have a mind hardness or a hard-heartedness. And they are those who are perishing, Paul says. They have a veil that lies over their hearts that has to be taken away. Because transformation only comes by the Lord who is the Spirit, we read in 3.17, who grants freedom and life through faith. We see this freedom and this life We see the veil being removed in justification and in sanctification. Justification, of course, is that initial act of God when He declares a sinner innocent or righteous in His sight. This happened in Abraham's life all the way back in Genesis 15. It said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was an amazing moment in Abraham's life when he believed God from the heart. And in that moment, at that time, once forevermore, Abraham was declared innocent in God's sight because he was righteous in God's sight. And so we too, as Christians, now we look to Christ. We look to the promises of God fulfilled in the gospel work of Jesus. And we are justified by God in a moment when we're born again, when we first believe, when we have that genuine trust and faith In the gospel message, we are justified by God, and the transformation process begins. Now, in a sense, the transformation process happens in an instant. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're going to learn that in the next chapter, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Yet, we also know, as Romans 8 says, that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 12 says, have your minds renewed day by day, being transformed by the Word of God. Our salvation, our sanctification, it is already but not yet. In God's sight, we are holy, we are righteous, we are set apart, but we are not yet as we will be because God's not done with us, is He? In fact, there's a lot of stuff that we need to work out, isn't there? Day by day, God continues to expose what's in our heart and That's sanctification. Day by day as He's growing us up in the faith in Christ, we recognize that just as we were not justified by works of the law, we're not sanctified by our own efforts either. Instead, we look to Jesus. Those Old Testament saints looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God when the Messiah would come and when He would accomplish redemption on behalf of the saints And we look back to that time now. We live on this side of the cross, and we look back to Jesus, and initially we're justified, and as we continue to do that through this life, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit in God's grace. Robert Gramacki has a great summary statement on this. He says, After a person has been justified by faith in Christ, He should walk under the control of the indwelling Holy Spirit rather than under the legalistic regulations of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. The gospel produces liberty from bondage to sin and to the law. We are now free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And where is He? He's here, isn't He? He's in each one of us, and as we gather together, He is among us, granting us great freedom. Well, this is the message of the new covenant. So Paul says at the beginning of this new chapter today, chapter 4, verse 1, since we have received this ministry or this life and service that we have, it's taking the new covenant out into the world and it's reminding ourselves of this new covenant that we're in with God. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says that we are servants of a new covenant. We have a ministry of the new covenant. And this ministry is taken into the world in hope and with boldness. Okay, that's the big idea for the first part of the message today, is that we take the new covenant with us into the world in hope and with boldness. We saw this last week in chapter 3, verse 12. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, 12. Paul writes, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. There are two words, hope and boldness. And I think what he does here in chapter 4 is he expands upon those two ideals a little bit more. 
You see here in verse 1, the theme of hope. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. That's having hope, isn't it? We do not lose heart, but instead we have hope. And this is the theme of Christian living. I mean, there are, there are lots of things I guess we could say that for. What is the theme of Christian living? You could put a lot of good stuff in there. You could say love. You could say faith. But hope has to be in that conversation, doesn't it? Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 says this about the Christian life. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In this life, we're waiting eagerly for the total, final redemption of our souls, and we wait in hope. We're waiting for something that we cannot see. And Jesus said, blessed are we for those who believe without seeing. The doubting Thomas He was blessed. He got to touch the risen Christ. But Jesus said in that moment, you believe because you see? Blessed are those who, without seeing, believe. That's hope, isn't it? We hope for that which we do not see. In Romans 15, 13, I love this verse. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope, God here is putting a label on himself, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing with what purpose? So that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying, both there in Romans and in 2 Corinthians, that this Christian life, the Christian service that we have, it's one of hope. We do not lose heart. And our hope is not some random wishful thinking, as the world might use that word. But our hope is based on something. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.1. Look how he ties our hope, our not losing heart, with mercy. He says, as we have received mercy or because we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. It's a mercy of God to be saved. It's a mercy of God to be in Christian service. What business do we have claiming God as our own? What business do we have as saying, we are children of God, we are servants of the King? What business do we have saying that we are priests to God and we will reign with the Son? The only business we have saying that is that we are recipients of mercy. Because in and of ourselves, in our natural state, we have no standing, we have no foundation, we have no root in and of ourselves to make these claims. But when we recognize the mercy of God and salvation, and when we're born again to a living hope, there's our word again, we now can talk about the God of hope as our God who has called us into His service. And there is great mercy in that. God's mercy gives us hope. You ever thought of it that way? God's mercy gives us hope. And so we don't lose heart, Paul says in verse 1. The Christian life and Christian service is driven by a hope that keeps us from giving up. Why is it that the Christian church just keeps going? The Christian church builds up these anthills and the devil comes by and knocks them over and we build them again. The the Christian church hasn't been able to be snuffed out for thousands of years. As the world mocks, as the world gains power over us, as the world persecutes, as the world tries to eliminate God's book, the Bible... We just keep going. How do you explain that? How do you explain not losing heart? It's because this is a supernatural hope, isn't it? God is working from the inside out. He calls His people. He comes into their hearts. He gives us new life. He puts us together and He keeps us going. We are propelled as Christians by hope to be courageous. You know, I I think out of all the people in the world, Christians better be the most courageous people. We got nothing to lose down here. We got nothing in this world that should keep us from being just besides ourselves for God. I mean, that's that's uh, Romans, uh, not Romans, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. 
Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. If we are beside ourselves, it is for you because of God's love that has just so revolutionized our approach to life. Christians persevere because of God's work in giving us hope. Christians stay in the fight for truth, though sometimes it looks like we're making no progress. Even sometimes it looks like we're making negative progress. Christians don't lose heart because we have the God of hope on our side. We have the God of hope in our hearts. Perhaps you remember in Numbers 21, all the way back in the New Testament, the Israelites were grumbling and complaining as they were prone to do. And God sent fiery serpents among the Israelites, and many of them were dying. They were getting bitten by these, by these snakes, and they're poisonous snakes, and they were dying. And Moses was instructed by God to make for himself on a standard a serpent. And so out of bronze, he made this serpent, he raised it up. And when anybody looked at his staff that had this snake on it, they would be healed. And Jesus comes along some 1,400 years later, and he says that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness on Moses' standard, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up, and all who look to him will have eternal life. In the Christian life, we keep looking to Jesus. We keep looking at the one who's gone before us, our forerunner in this life, the anchor for our souls, the one who is pulling us through in hope, and we don't lose heart. But it's not just hope that we have. There's also a boldness. Again, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul links these together, and he says, because we have hope, at the beginning of verse 12, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. So we don't just have hope, we have boldness. And this is incredibly important because we live in a day and age where uncertainty is the greatest virtue. What's like the most virtuous thing that you could say to so many people in the world right now when it comes to religion and faith? It's not, here's the answer. The most popular thing that you can say is, I don't know, we're all on our own journeys. What's true for you is true for you. Now, of course, there's a degree to which we are on a journey. There's great humility in admitting this, that you don't know all the answers. Yes, I, I affirm all that. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christian, have boldness. Use great boldness in your speech. Do not compromise on the message by which you have been saved. Do not entertain false notions that come from our enemy. Don't make friends with the world, but have great boldness in love that the truth would flow in your speech. Have the virtue of boldness. That's what Paul talks about next in verse 2. I think this is where he now explains in more detail what that means. We do not lose heart, he says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he starts explaining this here with the negative by saying there are three things that we've rejected. What does it mean to live in hope with boldness? Well, there are three things you've got to set to the side first. Three approaches to life, three approaches to quote-unquote ministry that have to be renounced. And he starts off by saying that he is bold because he renounces, look at verse 2, things hidden because of shame. The first thing he lists that they renounce. This is disgraceful behavior that is hidden from others. Disgraceful behavior that is hidden from others. And this behavior is hidden because it is disgraceful. Because there's a level of shame associated with the behavior. And I got to know a little bit more about what that kind of stuff is like whenever Melissa and I, before we had children, were managers of a local newspaper in a suburb of Kansas City. It was a weekly newspaper, and uh, week in and week out, we were putting the paper together and writing stories and interviewing people, attending meetings with local leadership and taking notes and all that stuff. And there was one county commissioner in particular 
that when I would go to his law office and I'd sit down with him and catch up on things, he was a natural, he did not have to be instructed, he was a natural at letting me know when something was either on the record or off the record. He, without me prompting, without me clarifying, he would tell me, now this is off the record, and then he'd go off and say this, that, or the other thing, usually about somebody else, and then he would let me know when he was back on the record. So when you think of things hidden because of shame, these are the off the record items that certain people employ in life. Now don't go telling anybody that I said this, or don't let anybody know that I did this. This is off the record. And the more I study the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, the more I think that he was always on the record. I don't think Paul ever told anybody, no, hey, don't say anything, but I think Paul was just wide open. In fact, that word comes up a lot in 2 Corinthians, that Paul is just open. His life was an open book, and that's one of the reasons that the Corinthians were to consider as to why he was not a false teacher, as some were claiming, because his life was open to them. But things hidden because of shame is sinful behavior taking place in secret. It's living a double life. It's being a hypocrite and not wanting anybody to find out, embracing the hypocrisy, enjoying the hypocrisy. And this is, of course, what false teachers do. False teachers often like to go off the record. And then for everybody else, they have a different life they live on the record. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 11 and 12. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Obviously, the things that false teachers do in secret, that's disgraceful. Paul says, it's disgraceful even to talk about it. He rejected that approach to life and service wholesale. So how can you live a bold Christian life as Paul here is beginning to define his bold life? Well, I think you could start here. Integrity. You want to rebel against the culture of today? You want to be a cultural rebel? Well, you can start by living a pure life for God. Start by living a life before God and before others that's open, where you are seeking after the holiness of the Lord, pursuing holiness by which no man will see the Lord, Hebrews 12 says. Boldness is integrity. He says also, continuing on in verse 2, that not only are things hidden because of shame renounced, but they also renounced walking in craftiness. They renounce craftiness. You could define this as devilishness, those who are imitating their father, the devil, by being deceitful, those who live a misleading life, those who are ready to gain an advantage in any way, those who, who are just ready for personal gain no matter what the cost is. Craftiness is deceit, and our new covenant living renounces the pragmatic craftiness of the world. We reject worldly thinking. We reject, we're just going to get whatever we want no matter what it takes to get there. That is not Christian living. Christian living is principled. Christian living is rooted in the truth. Christian living is rooted in love. It is not rooted in craftiness. And the next thing that they reject, the third out of our list of three, is directly related to it, that those who... Are, have shameful behavior in secret, those who walk in craftiness, they also adulterate the Word of God, which Paul and his fellows also reject, polluting the Word of God. So this is engaging in that craftiness, but using God's Word as the tool. Now, isn't this really sick stuff? Those false teachers out there, and I'm sure you could list off a few names of our generation, who are crafty, devilish creatures, who have as their tool for their craftiness, for their personal gain, the Bible itself. What a sick life. What a perverted ministry. And if we look at the wording of this, 
in the New American Standard, it says adulterating. These false teachers are using the word as a tool for their craftiness in such a way that it affects the message itself. It affects the gospel itself. The word of God is adulterated because of what they have done. I think this is perhaps the most horrific sin. Taking something of God's, something so precious as His Word, and distorting it. Distorting the Word itself. Now, um, I've used this as an illustration before a bit, so maybe you'll remember that I grew up as a bit of a picky eater. I am an only child, and so my parents let me get away with too much. Now, I have grown. I think probably since the last time I used this illustration, I've grown. I can eat lots, lots more now. In fact, there's not much I reject. But one of the most difficult areas of eating for me, uh, where I was really picky, was vinegary foods. I still don't like the smell of vinegar when I walk into the house after Melissa's been cleaning with vinegar. It's like, oh, it smells like an Easter egg factory in here. It's just disgusting. I just don't, don't like this smell. And uh, it just hits me in a way that is very unpleasant. And so, growing up, I really wanted to stay away from mustard and pickles, which I now like, so calm down, everybody, okay? <laughs> but, but I just really didn't like that stuff. And for those of you who can relate to me on that level of not liking it, you know that you can't just wipe off vinegary stuff. That once vinegary stuff goes onto a food, it has a way now of soaking into the food and ruining it forever. <laughs> it's now polluted. You can't just take pickles off the burger because that pickle juice has now made that bottom bun sopping wet with nasty vinegar. Again, I now like it. Okay. Okay. Well, I think maybe this will help us consider what happens when someone who is crafty, a false teacher, takes the Word of God and adds to the Word of God his own personal gain, adds to the message of the gospel his own pride or his own advantage that he can gain through this means, where what comes out, what what lands in the minds of the hearers is no longer pure. But the message morally has been corrupted. And the message, perhaps by the very words that he said, has been falsified because he has intermingled with the pure milk of the word, poison. There's there's been a drop of poison put into the gospel message. And the word, we could say, as Paul does here in verse 2, the word has been adulterated by their deceit. The message has been corrupted. It's been polluted. True boldness in the Christian life and true Christian ministry is founded upon submission to God's sufficient revelation. False teachers don't submit to God's sufficient revelation. The false apostles, the so-called super apostles in Corinth, were not in submission to the Lord's commandment. They were their own compasses and they were broken compasses at that And that's the same for every false teacher down through the centuries. So negatively, their boldness could be defined as renouncing these three things, renouncing things hidden, renouncing craftiness, renouncing the polluting of God's Word. But positively, we see something in verse 2. How were they bold in a positive sense? In the second half of the verse, it says, by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. They commended themselves, they put themselves forward with an open life, with a purity and a sincerity of ministry that could be examined by men, but more importantly, perhaps it was experienced by men. Their ministry, their life was experienced by the Corinthians that they should be experts on how genuine and sincere their service was. This was done in the truth, Paul says in verse 2. Their ministry, their lives were conducted in the truth. It was open to all. There were no games. There were no tricks. They didn't hoodwink them in any sense, but their lives were honest. To the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote to that church saying, Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. From church to church, continent to continent, wherever Paul was, his ministry was open. His ministry was sincere. His life was honest. And he's saying that to them. He's reminding them of that fact. He was with them for 18 months, remember, in Corinth. And he says, we commended ourselves to you. Their lives were not about looking good for others. Their lives were not about gaining personal advantage, but their lives were about loving people in the truth of God. And the Corinthians were to consider that openness that they had before God and before others, and they were to judge rightly. Notice that Paul says in verse 2 that we were commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We were commending ourselves to your conscience. I mean, can you just imagine if every Christian ministry was this open and bold, that there wouldn't be a need for these financial audit groups that go through and find out that there's been a Christian organization, yet another one, who's been robbing people. Can you imagine if there wasn't the sexual scandals, things hidden because of shame? Can you imagine if every Christian minister led an open life before God and others, commending each one himself to everyone's conscience? What a world that'll be. But their lives and their service, as it were, communicated hope and communicated boldness of this new covenant ministry, this gospel service, and it was all done in freedom. Again, I want to remind you of chapter 3, verse 17, 2 Corinthians three seventeen: The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. And this should be seen as a goal for us. Walking with the Lord in the light of His Word, as the hymn says. That we would walk with Him as He guides us by His light, and we boldly hope in freedom. As we boldly hope through this life, walking by the Spirit, free before God, transformed from within, as He has sent His Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee, and He works in our hearts and brings about holiness of life brings about unity among the saints. We live openly before one another, walking by Him. And amazingly, we, like them, are free to continue to behold the Lord day by day, moment by moment, as He is revealed in the Bible. This is the Holy Spirit's means of transformation. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3, the last verse of that chapter. With unveiled face, each one of us, all Christians, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And what happens? We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's the Christian life, is living boldly with hope. And if we're doing that, if we are beholding Jesus in the Word of God, if we're looking to the Lord continually day by day in God's revelation, how could we ever lose heart? As Paul says, we do not lose heart. How could we despair as Christians if we're looking to Jesus? Now, again, we've said this many times in the last few weeks, there is great reason to despair if you're looking to the law because the law depends on you. The law depends on your performance. But if you're looking to Jesus, if you're looking to the cross of Christ, if you're looking to the empty tomb, if you're looking to the Spirit who dwells within, who guides, leads, brings about fruit, who gifts you according to His will, how could you, Christian, ever lose heart? And this is extremely important because where Paul is taking us now in this letter is that we have lots of struggles in this life. Our ministry of this new covenant is not the only ministry that exists. We have an enemy. We do battle day by day with the forces of darkness, as Tyler reminded us in that devotional before we prayed, that we're doing spiritual battle day by day. There's an enemy. We recognize there's more to this life than what we see with our eyes. 
There's more to life than what you can see with a telescope. There's more to life than what you can see with a microscope. There is stuff going on all around us all the time, and there's a battle taking place. That's why you have to put on the armor of God. You ever send a soldier out to battle equipped with nothing? We go out and we do battle equipped with that armor as it's described in the end of Ephesians. We have to be ready for warfare because our ministry is a struggle. In this endeavor of living the Christian life, we do have an enemy. He's our competitor in the fight for souls, and it is a fight. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So why do some people reject our ministry, our message, the gospel? Why do some people reject this bold hope that we have? We go out into the world and sometimes we can think, this is what's needed. I'm going to go out and I'm going to show them how, how the gospel has made me so hopeful and has made me bold, and then they will believe. Why does that not work? Because trust me, if you've gone out and you've shared the message, and if again, as we were talking about earlier in this service, if there are family members you've prayed for, you've wept over, you've interacted with over and over again, and you've said the same thing a million different ways and a million different times, you're trying it from a little different angle, why is it not working? Why doesn't it work? Well, Paul explains this here, doesn't he? The gospel has been veiled. It says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You see, the new covenant is glorious. The gospel is glorious. It's a bright light that surpasses all other things that occurred before it. Paul was comparing in chapter 3 the distinction in glory between the new covenant and the old covenant. And the new covenant is so bright, you can't even see the old covenant anymore. It's great glory. However, somehow, some way, Satan has been allowed to put a blackout curtain over the glory of the new covenant for those who are perishing. There's a mind hardness, a callousness, a blindness that is occurring among the perishing. Satan seeks to cover up the glory of Christ who is our covenant from God? Isaiah 49, the one to come, the Messiah. He has become to us the covenant from God. And His glory is the light of verse 4 here. You see that at the end of verse 4? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Jesus Himself is glorious. And that is exactly what our enemy is trying to prevent the unbelieving from seeing. What is it that He's trying to stop? What is it that he's veiling, that he's seeking to drive them away from? It's the unique, eternal glory of the Son of God, the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse 3 that that's what's at the heart of the gospel. In verse 3, he says, our gospel is what is being veiled, the gospel that belongs to us, not just to them in the first century, but for all Christians. It's our message. It's the message we've been entrusted with as ambassadors for Christ. We go out with a message that we take ownership of as God's people. It's the message that Jesus, who is God, the one true God from all eternity, took on the flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a life among men that was perfect. He proved himself to be pure and holy, the spotless sacrifice. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he would go to the cross bearing the sin and shame of all people, being nailed there to suffer and die alone in our place for our sins. And he rose again on the third day, proving that he is who he said he was. He is truly the God-man, and no one can be made right with God except through Jesus Christ. 
There is nothing we can do to get that sin off of us. There's nothing we can do to get that polluted, corrupted nature away from us except turning to the Lord. Because when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed and you behold the person of Jesus. When you turn to the Lord, you see the glory of Christ and you, you understand, you recognize it hits home, the gospel. And you're born again and you're made right with God once for all, forever. This is central to the gospel that Jesus is uniquely glorious. In Homer Kent's commentary, he wrote that the glory of Christ is essentially His unique person as the image of God, the one who is the revealer of the invisible God on whom men must depend if they would see the Father and receive salvation. People must behold Jesus Christ as He has been revealed to us in Scripture, in the Bible. People must embrace Christ's eternal glory, not comprehend His his eternal glory. You can't do that. No one can do that. No creature can, can fully comprehend the glory of God. But you must embrace the glory of Jesus Christ and worship Him. That is central to the gospel message. That's at the heart of the new covenant. But there's a big problem. The minds of the unbelieving are veiled. Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Their minds are prevented from beholding and embracing Christ as Lord and God. If you remember again, going back to Thomas, what was his declaration when he felt the hands side of Jesus? My Lord and my God. That's what we desire the whole world to proclaim, isn't it? We, we would wish that every creature would proclaim that about Jesus. What's the hang-up? They're being veiled. Their minds are veiled. Our gospel is veiled. And notice that this hardness and this blindness happens to them. In verse 4, they have been passively blinded by the God of this world or the God of this age. You can go back to chapter 3, verse 14, the end of 2 Corinthians 3. Again, passive language. Their minds were hardened. So they are recipients of hardening from without, not just a callousness that comes from within. And trust me, there's plenty of that, isn't there? Each one in the flesh, in his natural state, there are plenty of obstructions to truth. But in addition to that, from the outside, you have this veil that has been placed over their hearts, a veil that's placed over their minds. Paul says in verse 3 that they are those who are perishing, those who have been veiled, They are the ones who are perishing. They are unsaved sinners in need of redemption. They are those who reject the good news. And that, therefore, qualifies them as the perishing ones. Look at the end of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, the last couple verses, 15 and 16. Romans 2, or uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, same word, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. For those who are perishing, that's those who are veiled, our aroma is the stench of death. What we are bringing to them, what what occurs among them is death to death, not life to life, but death to death because they're hardened. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Same word. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the result of the veil that lies over their hearts, the, the hardness of mind? What's the result? The cross is foolishness. The gospel, nonsense. The good news, bad news. That's what happens in the perverse mind of the unbelieving who are veiled by the evil one himself. Their lives perish day by day. They are spiritually dead from conception. That's what David says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. There's a a sin nature that exists from the very beginning of a human life. 
And then from day to day throughout that life, it's from death to death. There's perishing happening day by day. And so in a sense, the gospel is hidden from them. The gospel is veiled because they're already perishing. They're already worse off in their natural condition. It's already hidden because they're so callous at heart naturally. They're born into sin. They're born into Adam. They are children not of Christ from the beginning. They are children not of God. They are children of Adam. And their sin nature works against them from the start. It actually can get so bad, Romans 1 declares, that God will even hand people over to their sin. Three times in Romans 1, it says that God hands them over to their sin. And now... You add to that, add to their terrible natural condition, their horrifying state that's given to them by default, add to that the God of this world blinding them, veiling. We have in verse 4 the action here of Satan, who's the God of the world, or yours might say the God of this age. Now, he, of course, is a creature. He is not co-eternal with God. He was created by God. Yet, He has such authority, he has dominion in this age, in this realm, at this time, that he could be called a prince or the God of the world. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is sharing the parable of the sower who went out to sow, and he's tossing the seeds of the gospel. And that seed that falls on the pathway, on the rocky place, it never takes root. But instead, the evil one who's represented by a bird comes along and snatches it up. The God of this world. He comes along and he snatches the word of truth. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says to Christians, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He's the God of this world. He's the God of this age. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 26 expound on this same idea. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Why? Well, because with gentleness, we must correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Why do they need that? So that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. He's the God of this world, the God of this age. The devil is actively involved in the lives of the unbelieving. He hates Christians. I I hope you believe the devil's real. And if you do, I hope you recognize that he hates you. If you're here this morning claiming the name of Jesus Christ, he hates you, he hates your life, he wants death for you, he hates your ministry, all of your attempts to help others see the glory of Christ. He hates. He is following you around, veiling the gospel, or his minions are. Demons, which are also real. Demons who also hate you. Demons who also have a ministry of blindness. You don't have a friend in Satan. You have have an enemy. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, this is very interesting, Paul writes to this church saying, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Not just when people are coming to faith, but in Christian ministry, we still have to deal with the opposition of Satan. In fact, Jesus called him more than once the ruler of this world. Jesus gave him the title of ruler or prince. In 1 John 5.19, John assures his readers, saying, we know that we are of God. But then he says, and we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's what we're up against. Why is it so difficult to get the word out, to get the word to take root? Because the whole world lies in the power of the God of this world, who is blinding them, who's veiling the truth. 
So our role in evangelism has to be to help them turn to the Lord so as to be saved. 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's the means by which they behold the glory of Christ. That is how they embrace Christ as both Lord and God, is by having the veil removed. And the veil is removed only by repentance. The unbeliever must repent of everything he thought about God. And he must embrace God as he has revealed himself in his word. The external veil, that corruption that has come upon the sinner, has to be replaced by the internal power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. We rely on the work of the Spirit to come into the heart so that the person may be saved. The sovereign God has to remove this blindness, and He uses us. We are the tools in His hand. We are the instruments that He uses to reach the world. But it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. And we are totally, completely dependent on Him in this endeavor. It has to be an action of the sovereign God to change a human heart. You can't do it. You couldn't change your own heart. But you had to be born of God. This is God's business. And so we rely on Him day by day. I want to close by sharing with you this excellent quote from MacArthur, and then next week we'll pick up on this same theme again. MacArthur writes in his commentary, Underlying much of modern evangelism is the heretical idea that anyone can and will respond to the gospel if it is presented in an ingenious enough way. That view sees unbelievers as consumers for whom the gospel must be cleverly packaged in order to make the sale. Salvation is never the result of human persuasion. It is a sovereign act of God. Amen? Well, next week we will discuss that more as we consider our role in this process. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us, for giving us hope, and giving us boldness in this life as we go out as ambassadors for Christ to represent you with the gospel. Help us to do so well this week that we would not lose heart, but that we continue looking to you, the author and perfecter of faith, that we would just honor you by being faithful, lives of integrity, committed to the truth, submissive to you, God. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.